the rest of us can turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We have been going through the book of Revelation, and it is coming up, warming up on the screen there. The book of Revelation, and as we've gone through the book of Revelation, we have seen... It's a gradual revelation. It's this progressive revelation that is, is coming in as we come. Yeah. And uh, we saw in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, um, the outline that I believe that, that Christ um, shared with us. There we go. Um, and that is that he wanted John to talk about the things which have been, the things which are, and the things which will be. And in each of those, there's a message. And that was the message, first of all, to John himself. And then there is the, the message to the churches. And then finally there is going to be a message regarding the future. There we go. Now we got it. We're good to go. Alright. And so we have been going through the things that are over the last few weeks. And we have been considering the, the letter to the churches. And there were the four churches that we've discussed. Or the seven churches that we're going to discuss. Five already. And that is Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Theotira. Last week it was Sardis, and today we want to look at the church of Philadelphia, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the, the letter to the church of the Laodicea. In, in each one of these um, letters, I feel that there has been a basic outline, and that is that we have the introduction of Christ, then Christ's commendation, then Christ's challenge to the church, and then the promise of Christ as well. And, um, and so we want to use the same outline as we go through this one as well, to the letter of the church of Philadelphia. Now... One thing we're going to note about the letter to the church of Philadelphia that is different than all the other letters to the churches, and that is that this letter to the church of Philadelphia is a letter of full encouragement. Um, this is the church that everybody wants to be. Remember how we talked about that, uh, that there are those who believe that these refer to seven eras of the church? I don't think that's necessarily the case, and those who have believed it over the years, they've continually swapped the eras because Christ doesn't come back, and so they've got to continually change what era they're in. And uh, then there are those who believe that these seven churches, again, aren't literal churches, but they really refer to seven types of churches that will be in the end, end times. Well, again, the problem is that everybody from my point for, past has believed what? They've lived in the end times, and so they've been trying to figure out which church they were. Well, I believe that these were seven literal churches back in John's day that they, he was literally writing to these seven churches but I do believe that the application of the writings to these churches do apply to every era, every epoch, every time frame from that point forward and that as we go through we can look at individual churches, local churches and we can see that these churches that we've been a part of through the thousands of years really do mirror one of these churches Maybe a couple of them. Maybe there's a couple of the blends going on there, okay? And so I don't believe there's necessarily a church of Philadelphia that's out there today. But there are churches that are out there today that probably are representative of the church of Philadelphia. I don't know if any of them really are in the city of Philadelphia. You know, that would be nice to know if there was some that were there. But, so even though we're not in the city of Philadelphia, we can be a Philadelphian type church. We can still worship, uh, not worship, but we can, yeah, worship. We can still root for the Steelers. We don't have to root for the Eagles, but we can be a Philadelphia-type <laughs> church. Anyways, I, I, I could be Cowboys. Anyways, so, but this church of Philadelphia. Now, when Jesus comes, 
And he introduces himself to, the, to these believers in the city of Philadelphia. He, first of all, introduces himself regarding his character. And he says, really interesting about himself, he says that he is the one who is holy, and he is the one who is true. He is holy, and he is true. Now, the interesting thing about the words choices that Jesus gives throughout all these letters is that he is continually referring to his deity throughout all these things. And this is no different. He is the Holy One. He is the one who is true. And so we know, first of all, that the one who is holy, the Holy One, is always a reference to is God. But he who is true. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. Now, if the Son has come to give us an understanding that we may know him who is true, who is him who is true? God, the Father. So we know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. Now, if the one who is true, the true one, is the true God, who is Jesus claiming to be? He's claiming to be the true God. Isn't that interesting? Okay? And in Revelation chapter 6, later on in the book, we'll come get there in a, a few weeks, a few months. Revelation 6, verse 9 to 10, we're told that when the fifth seal was opened, he says, when he opened the fifth seal, I, that is John, saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they have held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and what? True. Until who judges? Until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And so we're told that Jesus Christ, again, is the one who's going to be the judge of the heavens and the earth. And we know that who ultimately is the one who judges? God. God judges. Jesus judges. Who is Jesus? God. Okay? And so his character ultimately is that he is, he is, he is deity. He is, he is God. He is holy and he is true. But note now a passage, which is really interesting, that he refers now to his authority. He is the one who has the key of David. And as the key of David, he is the one who what? Opens and no one can shut. He is the one who shuts and no one can what? Can open. Now this comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. And I have it up here so you don't have to turn there. We're going to be turning to other passages a little bit later on. But in Isaiah 22, beginning at verse 15, we read, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, is Yahweh uh, Elohim. And it says, The Lord God of hosts, go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house. Now, who is the, the prophet Isaiah supposed to go talk to? Shebna. Who is Shebna? He's the steward of the house. Now, we're not told necessarily what house it is at this moment, but we'll see that in a moment, okay? So, we, there's an important part here, okay? So, Shebna is the steward over the house, and that means that he has authority over these things. He has, and say this, what have you here, and whom have you here? Yahweh will throw you away violently. So I will drive you out of your office, being the steward of the house, and from your position, he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant, Eliachim, the servant of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand, the key of the house of David. I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open, and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one will open. So this comes from a prophecy, if you would, that was given to Isaiah, that he was supposed to declare to Elihim, the, the, the son of Hilkiah, and it was the idea was that it was a, a judgment upon 
Shebna. Shebna was the steward over the house. And as a steward over the house of David, the house of Judah, that he had full control. He was like, um, if you would, taking from a, a negative, and that was really a negative illustration anyway with Shebna, but another negative illustration, a guy that you all probably know, most of you know, from the, the book of Esther. Who would you equate Shebna to in the book of Esther? No, not Mordecai. Haman. Haman. Okay, Haman was, was the, the king's right-hand man. And Haman was able to get the king to do whatever he wanted to do. In fact, he put out the decree to destroy all the Jews. Remember? And then it was found out, and so he was deposed, just like this, from his position. And the position was given to Eliachim, but it wasn't Eliachim, it was who? Mordechai. And so Mordechai becomes the, the one who takes over from Haman. Right? And so in the same way, Mordechai then is given the signet ring of the king so that he could do whatever he chooses to do. The point is that he has all power and authority. Well, bring that now over to Jesus Christ. We're told that Jesus Christ now is the one who has the key to the house of David. He ultimately will be the king who sits upon the throne of David and reign over Israel. But not only does he reign over Israel at that moment, he reigns over everybody. Because Israel, we're told in Hosea chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, that after two days Israel will be revived, and on the third day she will be restored, restored to power. That's coming up. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. We'll talk about that in two weeks from now. Okay, Lord willing. We'll, that's part of that Old Testament prophecy that we're going to be coming back into and talking about God's prophecy with nature and then with, with Israel. And so there are... Um, there are texts out there in the Old Testament that give us timetables. And I'm not a date setter, but there's a lot of indicators out there that tell us about Christ's return. Eye-opening stuff. Anyways, but it's out there. And so I have a mortgage and all that kind of stuff, but we'll, we'll talk about it in two weeks. That kind of whets your appetite for two weeks from now, okay? So, but anyways, the David, in the house of David, Christ is going to reign over the entire earth. And he's going to come back, and he's going to reign. And so we're told that Israel will be revived. She has. And on the beginning of the third day, she will be restored to power. So when will that power be restored? When David sits on his throne again. Well, who is David? Jesus Christ. So when Jesus Christ, and he comes to sit upon the throne, he will once again, he will be reigning over the entire earth. He will have his scepter, his iron scepter, and he will be here on the earth. And he will have the key, and no one will open it, and no one will be able to shut it. Now what's exciting about it is that he right now, still does do, do what? He has the key. He reigns even right now. And the kingdom of God that we know, we understand, is not waiting to be established for the millennium. That's the physical kingdom. But right now, there is a spiritual kingdom. And so we're told by Jesus himself to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. And so the fact is that Jesus Christ right now does possess the king, the key to the kingdom, and what he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. And it kind of dovetails a little bit with what we talked about in Sunday school. Who can pluck them out of my hand? No one. No one can pluck you out of my hand. Why? Because once I shut it, no one can open it back up. Isn't that cool stuff? Anyways, and so he is the one then who is holy and true. He is the one who has the key to the house of David. Then he gets into the commendation, that his coming back to the, to the church of Philadelphia and telling them 
the good things about them. In, in every one of these churches, you'll note and he starts off the same thing. And that is what? I know your works. Right? I know your works. Now that's potentially a positive thing. Potentially not a positive thing. As we saw with the church of Ephesus, I don't think necessarily it was a positive thing. He was saying, I know your works. I know how you do all these things. However, you lost your first love. And so the motivation of all your works is what? It's meaningless. But he doesn't say that with the church of Philadelphia. Rather, he says, I know your works. See, I'm going to promote you. Because I know your works, I am going to promote you. I'm going to move you forward. We say, it doesn't say that. Well, it does say that. Look at what he says. I know your work. I'm going to promote your work. I have set before you what? An open door. And no one can what? No one can shut it. Now, how can he say that? Well, he just told us, who is he? he was, he's the one who has the key. And what he opens, nobody can shut. So he turns around and he says, listen, I know your works. And he goes on, and, but I, I don't want to go forward with it, but understand what he's saying then, through this whole thing. And I know they're what? They're true. I know your heart. I know it's real. And I'm going to help you out. I, I'm, I'm assisting you. I'm promoting you in the work that you're going to do. In fact, I have given you right now an open door that nobody can shut. Now, I want you to, for me, like I said, I try to apply each of these churches to my own self and then to us. I don't want to walk away from these bad churches and say, oh, they just don't apply to us. We just kind of skate through these things. But I want to take the challenges that are given to those churches and I want to ask myself, do they apply to me? Do they apply to us? But in the same light, this is a good one. This is a great thing, right? And so I want to challenge myself and ask myself, has God placed before us an open door? If we say that we love God and we're seeking to glorify Him and to honor Him, what am I doing to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness? And if so, has He opened a door? Has He opened up a window of opportunity for us to use that no one can shut? And in my seek, seeking to walk boldly through that door to use it for his glory. A couple years ago, Daniel and Greg um, motivated us, provoked us to evangelism. Do you remember that? When, when was it? It was the last two years. It was two years ago you started. Going down to the Masters. We have the opportunity... There's no way. How many of you are going to go throughout the entire world right now and preach the gospel? No way. But you know what? We have the privilege every year of having the world come to us. We may not be able to go out into all the world, but praise God, he's brought the world to us. See, I've set before you an open door that nobody can what? Shut. Do you know why in the United States of America, God has still allowed us to have what? The freedom to proclaim the gospel. You can go out there on those street corners. You can go out there on that street with a, with, a, with a track in your hand and you can ask somebody to read that. Now, they may take it and throw it on the, gun, or on the ground. They have the right to do that. They may tell you, get lost. They have the right to do that. But you have the right to take the open door that is there and to snatch the opportunity. You say, I don't have the power. You don't have to have the power. He does. Do you get it? It's not my words anyway. Some water, some so, but what? God gives the increase. So I'm prompting you right now. 
God's been prompting me this week already on this. <laughs> the opportunity comes. Listen, this is, I've shared a little bit about myself in Sunday school, and I share a little bit about myself a lot of times, and I've shared this, and some people say, oh, that's not true. Listen, I am basically shy. I know you don't believe that. I'm basically an introvert. I mean, I know that that doesn't, but the, the further, I, the minute I'm done doing all this and, and just pouring myself out, there's no place I'd rather be but hiding, okay, when I'm all done. I do this because this is what I'm called to do. And I learned when I was in the military as an officer that I acted as an officer. Even though I didn't, have, I didn't care about saluting troopies, I didn't, I didn't care about having the authority over the, the little privates, and I'm not meaning that rude, but you understand as a, as a butter bar, that was kind of the stuff that was there. And do you, do you it just wasn't me. I loved it. I was a programmer. I got to, 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 to seclude myself in my, my little office and, 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 and type on my computer and, and make programs and, and, and do all that stuff. And every once in a while, I had to go out there and train people how to use those things. I tried to avoid the public places as much as I could so I didn't have to worry about being the officer. But I was taught during that time what it meant. Well, same way here. So you may not understand that, that I'm really an introvert and I'm more shy as it is. But Marsha will tell you that there's times when, she doesn't believe it either, but there are times when she's, she's seen me just shut right down. You know, just I, just, I was too spent, and I just, I just came inside myself, and it was just, you know, I didn't want to do anything with anybody, and it didn't matter where I was. I was going to go find myself a corner and hide. And um, so my, all that to be said is, being on, on Washington Road with millions of people passing me, and and stopping them to ask him whether I can tell them about Jesus Christ and give them a tract is probably the furthest thing from my mind. Okay? I mean, if you ask me, you know, what do you really want to do? That's probably not the place that I want to go. I'd much rather stay at home and play a game of Axis and Allies with the guys. Okay? Or play a game of Settlers of Catan or something like that. That's fun stuff. But you know what? When God sets before us an open door, do you know what it's for us to do? Walk boldly through it. And then he will give the what? The increase. I may never see it. Two years ago, I still remember talking to this guy for half an hour, 45 minutes, a long time. He hung out with me. Now, I don't know whether he was trying to use me to, so he could try to buy tickets and sell tickets while he's standing there with me, you know? You know, because you know, they, they do that too much, too close to the masters, they get fined for that. So anyways, um, so I don't know if he was using me, but whether he was using me or not, he got to hear me preach, you know, for, for 20 minutes to 45 minutes, you know, and he'd ask me questions and stuff like that, and so I'd answer them. And so I got to try to hand out my tracts while I'm preaching to this guy. I would never have that opportunity if I stayed home. And you don't know the opportunity that God's going to give you. And I rejoiced in that. I mean, the Lord knew that I wasn't more the in-your-face kind of evangelistic kind of guy, that I was more the teacher, discipler, and that's what I enjoyed. And so he brought a guy along who wanted to be what? Taught and discipled, at least for 45 minutes. He had tons of questions, and he asked them. And I had the opportunity to, to answer them. You just don't know. Anyways, God is going to put before you an open door, and no one is going to be able to shut it. And so I ask you individually in your life, are there doors that God has opened up for you? And you have been scared to walk through? I'm there. I'm not judging you. I'm with you on it. Are there right now potentials for doors that you're afraid to go through? God says, listen, no one's going to shut it on you. If you know it's from me, no one's going to shut you, shut it on you.
We as a church, we stuck through an open door. Taken out of the side. Now I know that's about a physical facility and I'm not into physical facilities. But we need it for ministry side. And there is a little debate as we look at finances. And we say what? Can we, can we afford that and still give Bob, me, an increase in his pay so that we can continue to work toward taking him on full time? I mean, I hate talking about my own money and stuff like that, but I know that as a shepherd, I need to continue to lead you toward that as well because that's ultimately where we should be as a church is, is providing for the needs of those who minister the word over us. And so that happens to be me, and that's not attacking. But we ask, can we do both of those things at one time? And we're kind of stretched on, and we say, can we do that? And so we took the, 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 uh, the step through that door. Well, if we believe the door is from God, then I believe that God won't what? Shut that door. That God will continue to provide. And I believe that he will. Now, he says to him, then, I will set before you an open door. Secondly, this is so exciting to me. I will honor your faithfulness. Why? You have little strength. But, what? You've kept my word, and you haven't denied my name. You have little strength. If you've got faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, what? Be moved and cast into the sea. And what's going to happen? It's going to be done for you. Faith the size of a mustard seed. That's all that has to happen. God says, listen, I know that you don't have much strength. But what does Philippians 4.13 say? I can do all things. How many things? All things. How many things? Come on. All things. How? Through Christ who strengthens me. Not that I can do all things. There's too many people who focus on me on that one. See, the Bible says I can do all things. No. The Bible doesn't say I can do all things. The Bible says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because I have just a little bitty faith. I have a little bit of strength. But it's not my strength that's going to overcome. It's his strength that's going to overcome. And so when he opens up the door, he's going to be the one who holds it open. Not me. I don't have to sit there and try to hold the door open while I'm doing everything else. God's saying no. If I open the door for you, I'll make sure it stays open. And I will give you the strength to accomplish the task which I've called you to do. I will honor you. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, I have set before you an open door. No one can shut it. For you have a little strength. You have kept my word. You have not denied my name. But then he goes on and he says, I will then also promote you in your honor. Indeed, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan. This was a real slam. I mean, I hope you understand what's being stated at this moment. Because the synagogue is who again? We talked about this in, with one of the other churches. It's the Jews, right? He says, and he calls them a synagogue of Satan. He says, who claim to be what? They claim to be Jews. But they're not. Let's bring it back. Now, stop for a moment, because I don't want to ignore that one, because we're not going to talk a whole lot about it. But let's do apply that. You know, to the synagogue of Christ, if you would. Okay? Are there churches out there that claim to be believers? And who would Jesus call them? Would he call them churches of God, or would he call them churches of Satan? Listen, that's a struggle, because... I try, I try not to go that, to that step. It's not my job to, to make that final assessment of judgment. But yet, the other side is, listen, 
if they're not proclaiming the true gospel, if they're not proclaiming the true spirit, and they're not proclaiming the true Christ, <laughs> are they a true church? The answer is, no. Who are they? They're ministers of Satan, and so therefore it's the church of Satan. And though they may not call themselves a satanic group, if they're not of God, who are they? They're the devil. There's no balancing, you know, on the, on the fence, you know, I've got one foot over here and one foot over there. You're either on God's side or you're not on God's side. And so it's a struggle, you know, as God comes through there. But Jesus, very clearly, he knows, and he talks about this synagogue that's there, and he says, listen, they say that they're Jews, and they're not. Now, look at what he says about them, though. He says, I'm going to cause your enemies to acknowledge that you were what? That you're right. You say, how do you get that? Look what he says. I'm going, to, I'm going to take those who are the synagogue of Satan, who say they're Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them, no, I'm not going to request them, I'm not going to urge them, I'm going to what? I'm going to make them. I'm going to make them come and worship before your feet. And to know that I have loved you. Who did the Jews think that God loved? Israel. We can put that behind it if you want. Pop it behind it. Okay? The Jews thought that God loved them. But the reality is, what God's saying is, listen, I love those who what? Who, who worship me, who obey me, who have now then, if you would take this to Jesus Christ, who have accepted my plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. Yes? And so, he turns around and he says, and I'm going to take these Jews, these ones who claim to be Jews, but they're not true Jews, they're only physical Jews, but they're not spiritual Jews. They're not real Jews. They're only Jews according to the flesh, but not Jews according to the Spirit. Because Jesus Christ is the Messiah, yes? And he, was, he came as the Messiah to who? Jews. To the Jews. And so, and I'm not going to back to the book of Romans. You can go back there and check me out, Romans 3 through 5. But the reality is, I still, in a sense, become a proselyte to true Judaism. To spiritual Judaism, if you would. I become a follower of who? Messiah. To, to Jesus Christ, who was the anointed one of God, who was, came to the, to the Jews. Does that make sense? And so I am, in a sense, a spiritual Jew. I don't have to be circumcised physically. I have to be circumcised spiritually. The circumc true circumcision is the circumcision of the, the heart. Okay? You all know that. Okay? And so what he's saying is that these Jews, these physical Jews, who are in the synagogue, they're not true Jews. And I'm going to make them, though, come... And I'm going to make them acknowledge the fact that your faith in Jesus Christ, in me, that's Jesus, right, who's saying, is what? Is right. That all along they have believed a lie, but you have believed the truth. And all along they've been persecuting you needlessly. Now, there is two ways that this bowing before you to worship can be interpreted. First of all, it can be interpreted that I'm going to make your enemies, these, these uh, Jews who are the, the synagogue of Satan, that I'm going to make them come to bow before you in your presence to worship me. That they're going to come and worship me in your presence before you. Make sense? Okay? Or secondly, that I'm going to cause these enemies to come and bow down to you in order to honor you. Okay? So, in the Greek, it's... It can go either way on this one. Okay? The word which means before you actually means in your presence. So, but it, mean, it can also mean towards you. Now the word though for worship, for proskuneo, and to bow down, 
means to worship, means to, to actually fall down flat. And you picture the, I've done this before for you, but here, let's do it again. You can see. It's, it's like the, the Muslims placing themselves prostrate before the ground. That's really what the word worship means. When the, when the wise men came and they worshiped before God, that's what they did. You know, we like to sit in our, 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 our chairs and bow our heads and say that we're bowing before God. Whenever you like to, to, to make fun of the Muslims, because they don't have the truth, picture them getting down before Allah, who is a false god. Okay, So I'm not trying to say they have true worship. They don't have true worship. But their prostrateness is what worship is all about. And I challenge you to get on your knees before God, to really bow before God in worship and in prayer. It's amazing how a physical um, thing can really humble you. And it can really change your heart before God. You can sit there pridefully and, and bow your head. But you know what? There's something when you get off of that chair or out of that bed. And you get on your knees. And you bow your head. It's the position of somebody could have a guillotine behind you. And you're defenseless. You've humbled yourself before the Almighty. And so I want to challenge you in that as well. But in this then, there are these couple different ways. I think that there's potential for the blend to be in both of these things. And so I want you to turn with me to um, Isaiah 45. Turn back to Isaiah 45. to 23. And this is a great passage. I love to use this passage with Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons as well. And those who have been here for a while, you know that Isaiah 40 to 48 is my, is my, 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 my passage. You know? I mean, there's just so much stated about Yahweh that is of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus isn't Yahweh, then I, just, I cease to be a believer. Not even being a Jew. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to go nowhere because there's no truth. But in, beginning in verse 18, in Isaiah 48, we start to read, For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. So who, who is talking right now? Yahweh. And Yahweh is God. That's what he said, right? And who else is he? He's the one who created the heavens and the earth, yes? He formed it. He established it. He didn't create it in vain. Rather, he created it to be populated by people. Right? This is the one who's talking. This is Yahweh. This is God. I have not spoken in secret. In a dark place of the earth, I did not say to the seed of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness and declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together. You who have escaped from the nations, they have no knowledge. Who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told it from that time? Haven't I? Have not I, Yahweh? And there is no other what? God besides me. There is no other what? Just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. I am it. There is no other Savior. There is no other God. There is no other Creator. Verse 22. Look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Now, in those short couple verses, how many times has God said he's the only one? If God says something once, do you think it's important? If he said it twice, do you think he's trying to get a point across? If he says it three times within four verses, 
What, what do you think the impact should be? You better listen. Yeah. I mean, this is truth. Truly, truly, I, I say to you, right? So I'm God, there is no other. I have sworn by myself, verse 23, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to who? Who's me? God. Give me more. He gave us his name. Yahweh. Yahweh. So unto Yahweh, unto me, every knee will bow and every tongue shall take an oath. Every tongue will confess. Now turn back to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. You have on your sermon note sheets as well, Romans 14, where that verse is also quoted. But I want to go to Philippians 2. And so you can go and check out the Romans passage later on. Check me out. Beginning in, in verse 5, we're going to keep this in context. Um, Philippians chapter 2. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the very form, morphe, the nature, the, the inward person, God. Okay? So who was Jesus Christ? God. He did not consider robbery to be equal with God. So if he snatched something, if he claimed to be God, and he wasn't God, what would it be? It would be robbery. It would be stealing. It would be thievery. So he didn't, it wasn't robbery for him to claim equality with God. So therefore, what must be true? He must be God. Get it? So if it was his, so it's not robbery for him to do that, right? So um, verse 5, um, I'm sorry, verse 6 not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness, or the form, the, the, um, the schema of a man. There are many words, um, like about a half dozen words for form, in, in the Greek. There are two primary words that are being used here, and that is morphe, and that talks about the inward nature of somebody. And then schema, which is your outward, like we get the word schematic from, and morphate uh, is the word, like, we have a metamorphosis, okay, the changing of your morphate, the changing of your nature, okay? But the word schema, schematic, is your outward appearance. And so what Paul's saying here that is Jesus Christ inwardly, his very inward nature, who he was, was God. But that God then came to earth and took the outward appearance of a man. Get it? This is pretty cool stuff. And so he took on the outward appearance of a man, um, Verse 8, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has given, has highly exalted him and given him the name. Now, stop for a moment. That's not capitalized in your Bibles, although they capitalized, like we talk about in, in, um, in Sunday school, the word day in, in 1 Corinthians 3 because they believed the translators became the interpreters and they believed that that word day actually referred to the day of the Lord or the day of judgment, right? I believe, if I'm the translator here, and I become the interpreter, that I am now going to capitalize T and I'm going to capitalize N. Because I believe that what is stated here, that God gave him the name. And if you talk to a Jew who Paul was writing to, they would understand the statement right now. If I talked about the name, who is it? It's Yahweh. That's the name. And that is the name that is above all other names. That unto Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue take an oath or confess. Now we just read it in Isaiah 45. Who did God, called by the name Yahweh, declare 
everybody would bow to. To himself. But we're told here that everybody's going to bow to who? Jesus Christ. Who was given what? The name. Remember that for later on. The name. Jesus is who? He's Yahweh. He's God. This is awesome stuff. And so, there is also, and you have on your sermon note sheets, verses there, in the end of the book of Revelation, we talked about this a week or two ago, that there's going to come a time when we are going to reign with Christ in the millennium. Okay? That's, to those who overcome, I'm going to give the right to rule over nations with me. Okay? And so both of these things, in a sense, can be true. Because unto Jesus, how many knees are going to bow? Every knee. So only believers, right? Hmm. No. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to heaven. It just means that before they go to hell, those who are opposed to them are going to do what? They will bow the knee. They will acknowledge who he is. Even those of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not. I opt here is that the en- your enemies are going to come and they're going to, and they're, going to, they're going to bow and worship me in your presence. Because at that moment, think about it, who's already going to be there at that great white throne judgment when the dead, small, and great are brought in? Believers. We're going to talk about this in a moment where you become a pillar in the temple of my God. We will already be there when they're brought in. The rapture is going to happen. We're going to be caught up. The resurrection is going, to, is going to happen. And we who are His are going to be raised up to be with Him. And then the dead, small and great, are going to be brought in. And we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we have a part of the judgment of the world. It's a scary thought, folks. You are going to be the jury. In a sense, if you would, if you want to have the picture that's there. You are going to be the witnesses to the justness of God's judgment. And as we sit there in our white robes that will be given to us, that are not stained because of the blood of Christ, not because of our own righteousness, those who are the enemies, those who despise the name, those who stand up against you right now, who refuse to follow after our God, now, this doesn't mean to pump you up and to, to yeah, we're going to go out arrogant now. Be humble. Because it's still not about us, it's about Him. But to know, to know you are on the winning side. It is a done deal. You may not feel that right now. Feelings are deceptive. That's exactly right. Okay, my heart is deceptive. My feelings are deceptive. I can't trust my heart. I mean, all these people that say, trust your heart. Go with your heart. Don't go with your heart, man. Don't go with your heart. Don't trust your heart. Your heart's a liar. Go with God. Go with His Word. Go with His will. Don't go with your heart. Don't go with your feelings. But I feel, I don't care what you feel. I want to know what truth is. And the truth is that one day, those who reject the name of Jesus Christ and die in that rejection will come and they will bow before Him. In your presence. If you are his. And you are called by his name. Then you will be there one day. And these people will bow in your presence. And bowing in your presence. Think about this. The second side does then apply doesn't it? Because when they bow in your presence. 
they will be forced to admit what? That you're right. And they were wrong. And they can they can be Fonzarelli and delay that as long as they want, but in the end the G is going to be pronounced. You get those of you from Happy Days there, you get you can figure that one out. Okay? They're wrong. And they'll come face to face with it. And in that fact of admitting that you were right and they were wrong, you will have the ultimate honor that you'd like to see right now. Don't you just hate it when you know the truth and you talk to somebody else and they act like they know it? I, hate, I mean, it's like they're the, they are the authority on the Word of God and I ask them, How many, so when have you read? I haven't. But I know what it says. Good. I've read it. I can't tell you. I can quote the whole thing. But I know I know a little bit more about it than you do right now. And I can show you the passages that tell, tell me that you're wrong and I'm right. Oh, I know. That's just your way of thinking. And you just want to do what? Slap them upside the head. I want to get inside their brain sometimes and be able to twist that, just just tweak that one little that one little switch, you know, that boop, and, and, and then say, oh, I get it now. You're right. And it doesn't happen that way. But one day, it will. One day it's going to be there. He says, not only am I going to promote you in your work and in your honor, I will preserve you. This is so cool. This is so awesome. He goes on, back in Revelation chapter 3, he goes on, in verse 10, he says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will what? Keep you. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, first of all, he goes back, um, I want to go back to verse 8 in this, and he says, I'm going to keep you because you have kept my word. And in verse 8, we're told that you kept my word and you have not what? Denied my name. Jesus said that if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. We talked about that last week. If you deny me before men, I will what? I will deny you before my Father and before the angels. He says, but you have kept my word, you've kept my truth, you've kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Therefore, when the, the big trial that comes on the world comes, I'll keep you from it. Now we're told in the book of Thessalonians that we will be spared from the wrath to come. We'll look at that in a few weeks from now as we, we go through the, the revelation, uh, we go through uh, prophecy coming through the Bible. But we're told, we're given a promise that we are going to be spared from the wrath to come. But I want you to know that this doesn't mean that 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 he's going to spare you from all trial. Jesus said what in John chapter 16, verse 33? In this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so because of that, and we talked about in, in, um, in Sunday school, we want to kind of start back with that a little bit next week, is that being overcomers, the super overcomers, and that is that even though I'm going to go through trials, I may go through pestilence, I may go through famine, I may go through earthquakes, I may go through all these these things that Romans 8 talks about. But in the midst of all those things, nobody can pluck me out of my Father's hand. Nobody can cause the love of Christ to be taken away from me. And I can then, therefore, overcome in the midst of any one of those trials. But we are told, prophetically, that there is going to be a great trial, a great tribulation, a tribulation period, a period of seven years that is going to become a upon the earth, that it will be for the nation of Israel. 
I won't be there for that. And when the bowls of God's wrath are poured out, I won't be a part of that. God will deliver those who are his so that we don't have to be a part of that wrath. Now you're kind of wondering, where are you at then in all this, this stuff? You'll find out in the months ahead, okay? But I do believe that I won't be there for the seven years of tribulation. That's for Israel, not for the church. Believe that there. But he says, you've kept my word, you've not denied my name, therefore I'll keep you. Again, he says in verse 10, you've kept my word. The command to what? Persevere. Now the word there, you've kept my command, is actually the word logos again. It's the word. It's just a word, okay? And so both times the same word is being used. And he says, you have kept my word. And in my word, I have commanded you to do what? Persevere. To make it through the trials. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 3, we've looked at this again a couple weeks ago, so some of this is kind of review as we come through this stuff, but repetition is the key to learning. Repetition is the key to learning. So what's the key to learning? Repetition. So it's a good thing to have things repeated to you sometimes, right? I know I probably need to hear it ten times before it finally sticks. Anyways, but in this, then, God has given us a command to persevere. And he says in Hebrews chapter 3, that those who persevere to the end are what? Are saved. An interesting thing. We know those who are truly believers, because they will do what? They will persevere to the end. They will not die, they will not deny the name of Christ till the end. Okay, they will persevere. Now, they may fall, they may stumble. And we read about the guy in 1 Corinthians 5 this morning in Sunday school who was with his, his father's wife. And he was handed over to Satan that his flesh will be destroyed, but his soul will be saved. Right? That means that, that they were handing him over to the devil so that he could die in his sin. But that he would still be saved. But if you read 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 3, 4, somewhere in there. Um, uh, my mind is blanking on the chapter. But we read about how the guy repented. And Paul tells the church, restore him, so that Satan doesn't get the glory. Isn't it amazing how when a believer is confronted, finally confronted with his sin, what does he do? He acknowledges it and repents. If you're walking in darkness, and it doesn't bother you, and you only get mad when people confront you, and you never come and repent before God, i got to wonder whether you're really his. So, but... Jesus says to them, you have kept my command to persevere. Now look what he says. Therefore, I will also keep you from that hour of trial, which shall come upon the, what does it say? The whole world. This is not a localized trial. This is not a localized tribulation. This has nothing to do with the one that's coming into your home right now. This has nothing to do with the financial earthquake that we're starting to experience in the United States. It may be the beginning of the tremors for the earthquake that is to come. But there are earthquakes that are going to come upon this world that are massive. And I'm not talking about physical earthquakes. I'm talking about the, the spiritual, the physical, the, the financial, the everything that are going to come. And for those, Jesus says what? I will spare you from those. And what's the purpose of those trials that are going to come upon the whole world? What does it say? To test those. To test those. Anybody want to take a guess at what that word test means there? We just did this a couple weeks ago. To prove genuineness. That's exactly right. Because there are going to be some who even get saved during the tribulation, yes? Potentially. Okay. And the fact is that during those times when trials and tribulations come in your life, and we talked about this, when the poem of 
come in your life, and whether they're tribulations or whether they're trials, what's going to happen? It's going to prove whether you're genuine or not. And so these guys that go through the, the, the tribulation period, when they go through this great trial, it's going to be a great test, and it's going to prove genuineness. Okay? So let's go on. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to promote you, I'm going to preserve you. And then he gives him the challenge. He says, now in the face of all this, hold fast. Hold fast to what you have. Two reasons. First of all, that you may retain your crown, or otherwise stated in here, that you may not what? Have it taken away from you. So that you can keep a hold of it. That you are being watchful. That you can't lose it. Now, we just came out of Sunday school, okay? And in Sunday school, we went passage after passage to prove what? You can't lose your salvation. You can't lose your crown, right? Jack, you know, Jack fell down and broke his crown. Well, you can't, it doesn't happen that way, okay? You can't break your crown. You can't lose your crown. So what does it mean then? What is he saying? Listen, hold fast to what you have so that you, that you can't, have, no one can take away your crown. What's he saying? If the rest of the scripture says you can't lose your crown, what's he saying? Well, there are, as we talked about this morning, two sides. First of all, there is the crown of life. Nobody can snatch a crown of life. But as believers, we also know that whether if we build with the silver, gold, and precious stones, we're going to get what? Rewards. A lot of times in Scripture, those are referred to as crowns. And the word here for crown really is the word which refers to the... Um, um, my, my mind's blinking out on the term here. The, the Olympics... You know, the, 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 the wreath, the little wreath that goes on your head, it's not called a wreath, though. It's called a laurel. A laurel. Yeah, resting on your laurels. Thank you. Okay? And so, and for every time that they would win, they would get another laurel. They would be rewarded. And so, even though the laurel, in a sense, is meaningless. I mean, think about these guys who win the, the gold medals, the silver medals, and the bronze medals. I mean, the gold, the, you know, they may be worth something, but the reality is that it's the image of winning it that's worth more than the metal that they have around their neck. Do you get it? And so the little wreath was meaningless. The laurel by itself was, was worthless. It was the accomplishment that made it worth something. And so you have the, the Mark Spitzes, you have the, um, of my day, the Phelps, Michael Phelps of our day. He walked away with how many laurels? Eight laurels? A lot of laurels, didn't he? And so think of they were crowns, you know, kind of picture putting up there. You know, it would be kind of silly looking, huh? And so think of he wore all those laurels at one time. Now, you've, have you, anybody seen the picture where he has all those gold medals sticking out there? Okay, well, that's easy to do, but kind of picture it with the crowns going up. That, that kind of looks silly. So there's two sides of this, then. It's not necessarily the retention of the crown of life, which you cannot lose, unless you're not what? Unless you're not really real then you didn't lose it anyway. It was just revealed that you didn't have it. But there's the other side, and that is that your rewards, your laurels from that perspective in life, can be snatched away, if you would. Because all of a sudden, you haven't walked away from your faith, but you walked away from the application of your faith in life. Are you living like a believer? You claim to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. I have no reason to doubt whether you are or not. I can't judge you, right? But I am called to be a what? A fruit inspector. And I can look at your tree. And I can say, I don't see any fruit. You may claim to be an apple tree. 
But apple trees, to my knowledge, have what? Apples. They haven't got thorns sticking off of them. You know, there's no bristles. You know, some of them, if I cut them wrong, they kind of seem like they have those things. But anyways, but the reality is an apple tree has got apples on it. A pear tree has pears. An orange tree, orange. If you are of Jesus Christ, John chapter 15 says, you will produce much fruit. If you abide in his word, and his word abides in you, then you will bring forth much fruit. Because then, therefore, thereby, your father is glorified. Okay? So, you may retain your crown, your laurels. Okay? So I'll ask you the question. Are you resting on your laurels? Don't rest on them. Because if you're resting on your laurels, they soon may vanish. Secondly, he says, hold fast to what you have, that you may be found faithful. And not just found faithful, but found faithful when I return. And he says, because I am coming quickly. And we talked last week, I think it was about the, the thief, coming as a thief in the night. And how we are not children of darkness, but we're children of light. And so therefore, he shouldn't come on us un, unawares. But the reality is, no man knows the what? The day or the, the hour. I can know the seasons. I can know she's like a woman in travail. I can know what's happening, and we'll talk about that again in the weeks to come. But I still don't know the actual day. I don't know when he's coming. It could be today. Just because I have some timetables in my mind, just because I've done chronologies of the Bibles and studies of the Bible, and I think that I have a, a, an understanding of some of those things, I still don't know it. And God's not going to change his plan for me. Does that make sense? I know that when I get to the heaven, that somewhere along the line, I'm going to find out that I was wrong. Now, I don't know about you, but it's probably only been about one or two things here. You know, minuscule little things, probably. But if I wasn't wrong, I mean, people say, how can, you, how can you believe what you believe then and know that you may be wrong? Listen, if I thought I was right in everything, who would I be? God. Am I? No, and you're thankful. <laughs> okay. And you ought to be, right? And so therefore, since I'm not perfect, that means I'm not perfect. I try to be. I want to be Christ-like. I want to know the Word, and I want to have truth in all things. I hope that's your motivation as well. But in that, there has to be the humility and you know, the understanding that what? Somewhere along the line, my flesh has probably gotten in the way. And since we all, a lot of us, believe the same things, our flesh has gotten in the way in the same way. Okay? And when we get there, we're going to find out that, you know, we were probably wrong in one area. You ever hear the illustration about when the, the, the guy got to heaven and Peter met him at the pearly gate and he took him into heaven and, he, and he, you know, there's a, there was a big house and down the hallway, they're going down the hallway and, and they, they, they get to the first room and they, they get to the first room and, and there's people genuflecting and, and, and doing all these things and, and he said, these are the Episcopalians, you know, these are the, and, and you know, and Catholics and, and, and everything and, and so they go on and, and they go to another room and they go, and there's a bunch of people doing this, and you know, and, and he says, those are the what? Those are the charismatics, and he goes on, and he shows them each as they go down the line, and they finally gets to the, to the end of the hall, and he goes, shh, shh, open the door, he says, but you be careful, these are the, these are the Baptists, and they think they're the only ones here. <laughs> um, now, I say that because I'm Baptistic through and through, okay, I know we're a Bible church, you know, I can pick on us, but I'm Baptistic, I, I'm not a Baptist, but I'm more Baptistic than Baptists are. And so, we've got to be careful, thinking that we're the only guys that are there. For someone to be in heaven, 
What does it require? Faith in Jesus Christ. We may be wrong in other things, but it's there. And Jesus Christ is going to come back, and he's going to come back quickly. And when he comes back, you know what I want to hear beyond everything else? Well done. done. My good and faithful servant. Knowing you, the song that we sang, we're trying to pick songs, and and Gabrielle says, well, has anybody got a favorite? And I said, I do. Man, it just breaks me up. That's my heart's desire, is to know him. In the power of his resurrection, in what? The fellowship of his sufferings. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer. He's overcome the world. And going through those tribulations, you get to know him so much better than you ever would have if you didn't do them. Because then you don't need them. And one day, as you go through those trials and you learn more about him and you become closer and closer to him, he's going to come back. He's going to come back probably in the midst of one of those trials. And how's he going to find you? Is he going to find you doing that which is it? Jesus says, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season? Blessed is the servant, whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, that he will make him ruler over his goods. God has given you his food. He's given you the stewardship, no? He's given you the stewardship, Eliachim. He's given you the, the stewardship, Mordechai, over the house. You get it? He has the key. But he's given us a stewardship here. To do what? To give them their food in due season. Are you giving out the manna? Are you giving the food out that God has given you to give to others? When he comes, will he find you distributing his word? Or would it all be about you? Finally, Christ's promise to he who overcomes is really exciting. First of all, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You know what's so exciting about the pillar? A pillar is stationary. It doesn't move. There's none of this coming in and out. Right now, in the flesh, I enter into the presence of God and I walk out of the presence of God. I wish I could tell you that I live my life behind the veil. I know the veil's been torn down, but you get the picture I'm trying to get, okay? That I live... My life in the Holy of Holies. Now I know positionally, I've been cleansed by the blood, and so therefore he looks at me through the blood on the, on the altar. Does that make sense? But the reality is that while I'm here on the earth, it's kind of like I'm, I'm coming into his presence and I'm out of the presence, and I'm into the presence and I'm out of the presence, right? When that day comes, to him who overcomes, he's going to cause us to be like what? Pillars that aren't moved that are helping to hold up the temple of our God. And so when those who are our enemies come and they bow before his throne, guess what? Your pillar is going to be hanging there. Your pillar is going to be standing. And there's going to be lots of pillars. And back in those days, pillars were, had, had names on them. They had inscriptions on them. 
And they were, you know, kind of like the standing stone idea, if you remember that from the, um, the, that the world may know videos. Okay? They were, they, were, they were important. They stood up. They represented something. They may or may not be holding up the, the, the what do you call it, the, the ceiling. They may have just been decorative. But they were there. And on them then, they had a name written on them. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you three names. First of all, I'm going to put on your pillar the name of my God. Leave that for a moment. Secondly, I'm going to put on you the name of the city of my God. Anybody know what that is? The New Jerusalem. And finally, I'm going to put on you my new name. I'm going to seal you with my new name. You, once you have, are in Jesus Christ, you're sealed. Yes? With the spirit of promise. And you're given the name of God. And ultimately you'll have what? His new name. Do you remember Philippians chapter 2? A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. So don't, don't, well that was a long time ago. No, it wasn't a long time ago. It was before the foundations of the world were laid that Jesus Christ died for us. Right? And we're told that God gave him a what? The name. God gave him a new name. That at the name, every what? Knee will bow and every tongue confess. I submit to you that potentially these two names are the same. And that on you, you are going to be sealed with his name. Being an inhabitant of his city. Get it? Philippians chapter 3. You're citizens of the kingdom. It's a done deal. So, are you an American? Or are you a Christian? It's okay to be an American. I serve my country. But which is first in your mind? I believe the day, Christian, praise God, Andrew. I believe the day may come when you're going to have to make that distinction. There are many people around the world having to make that distinction of which king they ultimately serve. And I believe in my lifetime that those decisions will have to be made. And it will be a hard moment and it will be a hard time. Because I am an American. But I am a Christian. And my citizenship is in heaven. That's where I'm on the rolls. I happen to have been born here, but I've been adopted to there. So, brethren, be encouraged. Christ knows your work. Now, hopefully it's an encouragement. That may not be to some of you, but it should be an encouragement. Secondly, he will support his ministry through us. Therefore, we need to be faithful and to go forth boldly. Why? Because Christ has overcome the world for us. And so ultimately the question is, are you an overcomer? Those who are in him will do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to serve you in faithfulness. God, I pray that you would be exalted in everything we do. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity you've given us this day to worship you and to serve you. I thank you, for the, Father, for the opportunity we have even this afternoon to watch those who um, have given their life to you proclaim it publicly, following you in obedience. God, I pray that you would be exalted, that you would use 
the testimony of these individuals, not just today, but God, I pray that publicly, confessing with their mouth the Lord Jesus, that you will bring forth fruit in abundance. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. God, that we would see your kingdom expand, that we would see your glory be known. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for, um, for looking at our own things and not your things and the things of others. Forgive us, Lord, for treating your deity with complacency. But God, I pray that we would be ready, that we would be like servants who are, are serving faithfully, waiting for your return, not in fear, but in great desire, looking forward to our time with you. In Jesus' name, amen.